0: Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am delighted to be joined today by Luke Thompson, who is a Republican strategist. And we're going to be talking about the primaries in America last night. Now, Luke, you were actually quite involved in these primaries and particularly in the primary in Pennsylvania. You were an advisor, David McCormack, who, as things stand, it looks like it's going down to a recount, a pretty tense, tense and fiercely fought race. So we're, we're awaiting the outcome of that. But it seems to me, looking uh, from this side of the Atlantic, that there is a strong desire to say that this is a sort of bloody nose for Trumpism within the Republican movement because Madison Cawthorn was beaten. And Mehmet Oz, the Trump back candidate, has not clearly or comprehensively won. Would you say that's an accurate way of looking at it? Well, to clarify, I, I was an advisor to a super PAC
1: that was supporting Dave McCormick. So I, I was not involved in the campaign. In American election law, it allows for independent groups to buy advertising to support or oppose individual candidates. Got it, and, got uh, it. I helped I helped one of those that supported Dave McCormick. Yeah, I understand that there's a a great hunger for broad narratives and specifically a broad narrative that says that any night, every night seems to be a, a bad night for Donald Trump in the, in the mainstream media. I don't think that's true. One needs simply look at Ted Bud's dominant victory over uh, former governor and Charlotte mayor, Pat McCrory in North Carolina's Senate race to see that certainly the president's endorsement goes a long way. It still does. In the case of Oz, Oz entered the race with universal name ID and was overwhelmingly viewed favorably, but he also had a lot of baggage having been on television for many years. And while on television, more or less endorsing a number, or at least if not endorsing, giving uh, an extensive platform to fairly culturally liberal issues from abortion to gender reassignment surgeries for children, as well as guns being sort of hostile to gun rights. All of those are are major cultural issues in a Republican primary electorate. And part of my job was to make sure that Republican primary voters were aware of them. I think, you know, Oz ran, to his team's credit, they ran a very, very good race. And, you know, President Trump came into Western Pennsylvania a couple of weeks ago for a rally and really went hammer and tongs against McCormick. We also had a third candidate, Kathy Barnett, a sort of grassroots conservative activist who shot up in the polls in the last week As the race consolidated, it looked as if she might be contending for a win, but fell about 12 points behind Oz and McCormick, who at the time of this recording are functionally tied Mm. for first, a, a couple of thousand, maybe a few hundred votes separate them. So we're almost certainly going to go to a statewide recount. In Pennsylvania, there's an automatic recount if somebody doesn't win by greater than half a percentage point. And as things stand, we got somewhere between 1.2, 1.3 million votes. So they're they're separated by about 2,500 votes, with perhaps somewhere around 30,000 votes still uncounted. It's unclear where things are going to shake out. I w- I would expect them to be a little closer than they are now, but well within that half a percentage point that will will trigger an automatic recount.
0: Well, let's talk a bit about the emergence of, of Kathy Barnett. I mean, it worked in McCormack's favour, did it not, that she came and sort of took votes away from Oz on the kind of the radical right, the Trumpy right, if you like.
1: I, I don't think we know yet there will be a lot of opportunities for postmortem analysis. I think it's probably safe to say that Barnett's rise in eastern Pennsylvania came at the expense of of Oz. In western Pennsylvania, it's not totally clear whether her rise came at Oz's or McCormick's expense. It's a very regional race. McCormick is from Western PA, the Pittsburgh area. Oz is running from the Philadelphia area. And so certainly in the eastern half of the state, Barnett's rise probably hurt Oz. You know, she received a last minute infusion of funding from the Club for Growth, which is an outside group that has has over the last couple of years been very close to the former president, but In the Ohio primary, attacked his nominee or his endorsed candidate, JD Vance, whose super PAC I ran. And that led to a real falling out. And I think the Club for Growth's attempt to back Barnett was an effort to undermine President Trump very Mm -hmm. explicitly. And so that certainly that rift appears to be not only still present, but perhaps widening. But Barnett, to her credit, she she had an underpowered from a money standpoint campaign, and it was a, a genuine grassroots campaign, but she's very charismatic. She's an an impressive speaker with a really sort of only in America moving life story. She was born on a a pig farm in the Deep South and has a very impressive career. And I think she's an impressive person. and, And certainly about a fifth of voters really responded to that. And despite being wildly outspent by both McCormick and Oz, she clearly shot up in the polls and captured something for an important sector of the electorate.
0: Well, a big discussion point, talking point on the right in America is about how the Republican Party should deal with or talk about the 2020 election. And obviously, as everyone knows, Donald Trump is very keen, adamant even, to stick to the idea that it was stolen. But I wondered if you got a sense, and from your research and data, have you got a sense as to how that is playing out, particularly in a state like Pennsylvania, which I think had quite a strong MAGA movement, if you like. How does talking about the election, 2020 election, and the issue of it being stolen or not, how does that play with voters?
1: Well, Pennsylvania and Arizona were sort of ground zero for disputes over over the 2020 election. Pennsylvania in particular, I think there are some very legitimate grievances that people have. Certainly, the state Supreme Court, which is very partisan and controlled by Democrats, more or less legislated extra constitutionally unique rules for the 2020 election that enabled a lot of unregulated voting, to put it simply. In terms of the Republican primary electorate more broadly, there's, there's a deep hunger for meaningful election integrity reforms. This, of course, gets lambasted as racist in the press, which is nonsense. And such a tendentious claim is that it is rapidly losing credibility. I mean, you know, mandatory photographic ID for voting is supported by majorities of literally every single demographic in the United States, it's except for affluent white liberals with master's degrees, i.e., the base of the Democratic Party. <laughs> um, and so, you know, the Americans are frustrated that many states in this country struggle to count votes in a timely fashion, struggle to, you know, deliver effective, timely results. I think everybody understands that in a case like last night's Senate race, where you have well over a million votes counted and only a few hundred separate the top two candidates, it's going to take some time, there's going to be a process, but you want that process to be detailed and transparent, and you want things to be run with integrity. You know, After Ohio had a couple of really close presidential elections in 2000 and 2004, the state implemented some reforms that, that I think are really the, the gold standard for American elections, and I think that other states should adopt those standards. It is easy to vote in Ohio. It is extremely difficult to cheat. Pennsylvania would do well to, I think, pick those up. So Republican primary voters, they care a lot about election integrity. It is a one of a bundle of issues that are high priority issues. You know, we're seeing the worst inflation in this country in almost half a century. That obviously is affecting people across the board. Inflation is even disproportionately greater in things like energy, gasoline, et cetera. So people are very focused on their their kitchen table issues. The cost of food, a lack of availability of, of baby formula. These things are driving the day. The crisis at the southern border where you know just this morning i saw that the department of homeland security released statistics showing that a quarter million immigrants were encountered by the border patrol in just last month illegal immigrants coming across across the southern border so so it is one of a series of issues you might call it inflation and economic concerns kitchen table issues mm-hmm. i think there's growing concern that that economic stagnation is coming along to combine with this inflation are out of control southern border and worries about about democratic process yeah those are all there but it's i I don't think you can reduce it just to the 2020 election much as again that's a that's a narrative that i think much of the american press which leans heavily democratic tries to reduce it to that because frankly sustaining the narrative that you know efficient fair And transparent elections are racist is sort of a ludicrous fiction. And even if that is the Democratic Party's more or less official and default position, that doesn't mean we have to treat it with any more respect than it deserves, which is none.
0: I take your point, but is it not true that, I mean, it is a distraction in terms of Republican messaging to constantly be sort of bouncing around what Trump has said about the 2020 election?
1: I mean, I don't I don't see it as a distraction talking about election integrity. And again, in a state like Pennsylvania, where people have very, very legitimate concerns, I don't see it as a distraction at all. It's important to separate whatever the media narrative of the day is, Mm. which is mostly stupid and detached from voters lives, from what voters actually care about and what voters actually care about, as I said. They do care a lot about election integrity. They do mm. care about making sure that their elections are fair, transparent, and accountable. On the other hand, they also care about kitchen table issues. They also care about immigration and making sure that we have law and order. I mean, we've seen a colossal spike in the homicide race rate in American cities in the last 18 months. Voters care about that as well. So I recognize that you know the Beltway Press certainly fixates on these issues around 2020, and tries to reduce everything to the most uncharitable narrative possible in order to, you know, avoid having to talk about Joe Biden's disaster of an administration. That is not the reality that voters are encountering. That's not what voters are seeing and hearing, because they've checked those voices out since those voices have shown themselves not to be credible.
0: Clearly, Team Biden, for want of a better word, they regard talking about the MAGA crowd as an effective tactic. I mean, they're, they're making an effort to do it. Presumably they're doing that for a reason.
1: I don't know why they do what they do. There are times when I doubt that these people could dump stones out of an open top box with instructions written on the bottom. (laughs) Um, I am flummoxed by much of what the Biden administration does because they seem to respond entirely to People who spend their lives on the internet. Which, as someone who could be accused of spending his life on the internet, I I certainly understand the temptation. But I've never made the mistake of conflating my own experience with the universal experience of all mankind. Let alone even the modal experience of an American. You know, they may have a poll that says that that's the best of a variety of of possible messages. But a poll will only tell you what the best message is among the questions that you have the. The perspicacity or wherewithal to ask. And I don't really get the feeling that the crack team in the White House is asking questions about what matters. And, you know, the dunces in the press will allow them to set the tune and follow along and then wonder why their ratings are collapsing, why their readership is collapsing, and why people are tuning them
0: out. I mean, I suppose what the logic probably would be that the unpopularity of Donald Trump was a good driver for them in 2020. And that if they can keep the conversation about him, and the maga crowd their sort of polite version of of what hillary clinton called deplorables then that will be a, a motivating factor for them in come the midterms
1: yeah i think they're delusional and they're going to get shellacked yeah um, and they deserve it i mean they've been they've been a disaster across the board there's not a single issue area where they've handled things well yeah. even on on the ukraine question where initially they showed some prudential restraint all that seems to have gone to the to the wall you know, in the middle of an inflationary cycle, they're now going to spend billions of dollars. People may think that for that $40 billion is going to Ukraine, a huge chunk of that's going to be spent here in the U.S. replenishing weapons stockpiles and other things like that. So it's just they're they're just they're adrift. Ron Klain is the dumbest man ever to hold the office of White House chief of staff. He's incompetent. It's unclear that Joe Biden knows what's going on on any given day. He has no agenda. He's setting no agenda. And as a result, he's allowing the ideological radicals that that have sort of that claim has placed in the bureaucratic apparatus to set an agenda for him. And they're all very, very silly, ridiculous people with no real contact with the American mainstream. And as a result, the Democratic Party is at the nadir of its historical popularity since they tried to secede in the 19th century from the United States, and the annihilation of an entire generation or two of Democratic officeholders that's coming in November will be thoroughly deserved.
0: <laughs> the issue of abortion obviously has, has bubbled up since the Supreme Court leak of, of Samuel Lito's draft opinion. It seemed to me Democrats got quite excited about that at first and thought that could be an issue on which they could rally their bases. From what you've seen in Pennsylvania, how do you think it played out?
1: I I think, again, this is more proof of just how out of touch they are. We are not living in the 1990s anymore. You know, American society has changed. American culture has changed. And above all, technology has changed. And whereas, you know, American progressives delude themselves into thinking that their vision of a technocratic state is scientific and a byproduct of technological progress, rather than simply some like bizarre washed out Hegelianism, with eugenic traits. The reality is, is that the more that people learn about the, the better pictures of of a fetus you can see, the more self-evident it's humanity is. Our ability to save babies born at 21 and 22 weeks now, whereas before that was impo- an impossibility, makes it increasingly difficult to make the argument that, much abortion rhetoric hinges on, which is that the baby is not a person because it's dependent upon the mother to survive. And additionally, frankly, on the flip side, increasingly this this country is turning into an opt-in fertility society for good or for ill, which means that unwanted pregnancy, the specter of unwanted pregnancy is not haunting the middle class the way it used to. And we see this in where abortion rates are clustered. They are increasingly clustered at the bottom of the income scale. And I think increasingly abortion is is remote from the daily concerns of, of the American middle class, which has historically been the support for our country's absurdly permissive abortion laws that are rivaled only by those of North Korea and China. Mm.
0: But I mean, Democrats would insist that they have The majority on the – there's a pro-choice majority. They're
1: they're just – they're dead wrong. The official position of the Democratic Party is that there should be no legal constraints on abortion, none whatsoever. And that is up to and including the day before a natural birth. That is a position held by fewer than – roughly one in eight Americans. If you poll Americans and say, do you want to overturn Roe v. Wade, you'll get about two-thirds that say no. If you get into the actual tangible – Meaning of abortion policy, you learn very quickly that the Democratic Party's capture by the abortion lobby is one of its great political vulnerabilities and that it strikes at many of their core constituencies as well. Furthermore, one thing that's missing in this discussion is abortion federalism is already a fact on the ground in much of this country. And so there are not that many places, some states in the upper Midwest, maybe Florida, it's unclear. Maybe Nevada, but again, it's unclear where people have easy access to abortion today, but would lose it under a condition where Roe is repealed and abortion law is set by the state legislatures, which is what would happen, right? A repeal of Roe does not ban abortion in the United States. It essentially says there is no federal constitutional right to an abortion. That was wrong when it was decided and thus it's a health, safety, and welfare policy question that is left to the states under American federalism. Some red states would ban it outright. Other states would have much more restrictive laws. And, and then blue states like New York would continue to have a total, would have an even more permissive regime than exists right now, barbaric as that may be. And so the fact of the matter is there's not going to be a whiplash shock experience in a lot of parts of the country where people thought that they had Abortion available to them and then lose it overnight. Then that's just, again, this is not the 1990s. We are living in a fundamentally different technological, cultural, and political landscape today than we were 30 years ago. But since Joe Biden, it's unclear, can remember anything from the last 30 years, it's not surprising that he and the people around him are trapped in 1990s thick.
0: I'm quite struck talking to people in Britain about it, how few people seem to be aware that abortion up to birth is accepted in America. Is it true to say that Americans are sort of almost unaware of the extent of abortion liberalism?
1: Yes, most Democrats are unaware of how extreme their party is on this. And if they were aware, would reject that policy position.
0: Mm. So in a sense, if abortion becomes a burning issue in the next few months, it could work out badly for the Democrats because their, as you put it, extremism on the issue will be revealed.
1: Yes, they will either have to moderate on the issue or suffer the consequences politically. And that that happens in two ways. One is they're out of touch with the electorate, much more so than the Republican Party. And second, if we're talking about abortion at a time of, you know, twice a century inflation, the Democrats lose by virtue of controlling the entirety of the federal government being focused on something that is not getting inflation under control. And so they they lose twice over. They lose because their actual policy commitments are bad, and they lose because it reinforces the sense, rightly, that they're just not focused on the priorities of Americans.
0: The picture looks quite good. You look at the, the economy, those kitchen table issues you were talking about. The picture looks quite good for the Republican Party. But the Republican Party has struggled with its own image in recent years and decades even, have you sensed a change in that? Is there a sort of a come togetherness between the, the Trump movement and the Republican Party? Is that is that finally beginning to happen?
1: Yeah, I, I think this may be a, a bias of mine, but I, I tend to think that the commentariat vastly overstates change when usually continuity is the rule. The Republican primary electorate today is is very concerned about the economy, they're very concerned about the border, they're very concerned about election integrity, and they're very concerned about about a handful of marquee cultural issues where, again, the Democrats are out of step with, with the general electorate. The demands they're making, though, on Republican elected officials are all policy demands that thoroughly conform with majority opinion in the United States. You know, it's certainly true that there has been a transition or a turnover among conservative media and intellectual elites. I think you've seen some motion there. That's largely a byproduct of them having become detached from where the Republican primary electorate was in the wake of 9-11. You know, the Republican primary electorate today looks a lot like the Republican primary electorate did in 1999. Their policy concerns are similar to those policy concerns. And when we look back on this from, you know, 40 years from now, it may seem and I think will seem that the period from 2001 to 2015 is the aberration not the periods on either side of it.
0: Luke, we'll leave it there, but thank you very much for joining us and you probably haven't had any sleep, so um, I hope you get some rest.
1: (laughs) Not as much as I would like, yeah. Good to talk to you, Freddie, thanks.
0: Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. (laughs)